Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com and for this episode I'm joined by a guest who you have heard from before if you are a longtime loyal listener of the podcast. That guest is Eric Jonsson. Um, he is ERK Tennis on Twitter, one of the essential tennis followers on Twitter if you're interested in, especially in up-and-coming men's players, but in tennis for tennis in general. He's a great guy to keep an eye on, and I really enjoyed my chat last time I had him on the show, so I'm glad to bring him back to talk about some of the key narratives going on right now. So Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Absolutely. Uh, let's start by talking about one of the biggest stories of 2021, Aslan Karatsev. He is now, I don't remember, is he number 27 in the rankings? And he's got a seating in Miami and he's won a 500 title, dot, dot, dot. So much excitement from Karatsev. And I think that the biggest question on everybody's mind, including mine, is how good can this guy be? I mean, is he, do you think, Eric, is he a top 30 player going forward now? Um, well, he, he's, he's number one in your year ELO. So obviously that's his real level. Um, <laughs> no, but, um, jokes aside, I mean, given his age, I, I believe he's 27, unless I'm mixing that up with his ranking at the moment, uh, but thereabouts. And so there's, there's not really much room for improvement. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is sort of the full version of Aslan Karatsev, um, which sort of means that, that the real question is, which might be what you're asking as well, is can he keep this up and to what extent can he keep this up? Um, I mean, a, a couple of years ago, we had Marco Cecinato, uh, who had a great run at the French and won a couple of titles in 2018 and then somewhat regressed to the mean. So that is absolutely a possible scenario here. But I would say that Cecinato always felt like more of a fluke. Uh, I'd say Karatsev is more of a well-rounded player. Um, when he started making his breakthrough in the fall on challenger level, he, he had great success on play, and now he's playing uh, superbly on hardcore. Um, and I think his swings are a bit more reprodu reproducible, and he directs the ball so well, it takes him under eyes. It, it's not like it's hit on his tennis. So I, what I think is actually top 30, I, I would say that's, that would actually be my mean prediction. It, it might be a bit aggressive, but I, I, he could go beyond that, but top 30 would be my mean prediction where the span is honestly anything from 10 to 15 in the world to getting back to just, so to speak, playing on, on the challenger level. So I'm glad you brought up Cecchinato because that is sort of the the best example of someone who popped up, made this amazing run, and then almost immediately just went back to a, a pretty pedestrian level. So you mentioned like the reproducibility of the strokes, the fact that Karatsev can play well on multiple surfaces. Like, what what are you looking at? What makes you say that? Anything beyond that that makes you think Karatsev is more likely to sustain his success than Cecchinato did? I, th I think it also comes down a bit to mentality. Um, <laughs> his uh, post-match interviews and pre uh, press conferences have been uh, great from a fan perspective, probably not 
uh, as much uh, from a media perspective because it gives these these short sort of yeah it is what it is kind of answers um he it seems like um he's it seems like he feels that he has found his level. Um, and yeah, like I said, there, there's, there's just not much about his tennis that feels like this is a fluke. Um, he can, he has beaten numerous, numerous top player, players already, which uh, Cicinato didn't quite do to the same extent, obviously beat Djokovic, if I'm not misremembering, but that was a different Djokovic than uh, what we're seeing now and before that. Um, so I, I, I'd say it's everything from his game uh, to the fact that he has sustained this level uh, from August, September to now and with a uh, off-season in between as well. It's not just just building momentum, you know, it's, uh, it's continuing after a break as well. There's, there, he has a lot going for him. Yeah, unless he has some kind of magical skills to like maximize pandemic success, then unless he's like a pandemic specialist, then it seems like there's something real going on here. And you started with like the number one knock against Kartsev is that he's 27. So Normally, if we're talking about prospects emerging from the challenger level, we're talking about guys five years younger or more than that. And he's not. He didn't make that jump for various reasons. It took him until he was 27. And normally, when someone does crop up at that age, we are rightfully skeptical. I mean, there's a reason why they weren't they weren't successful at age 22. And that's because they, they didn't really have the potential to be that great but Karasov has seemed to prove that wrong and I'm wondering what does does that mean we should be looking closer at more guys in their mid late 20s on the challenger tour like if it, it, let's say like Bjorn Fratangelo just won the Cleveland challenger last week I think he's 29 so he's kind of on the outer edge of what I'm talking about but if he has a great six months on the challenger tour let's say he wins four or five challengers let's say by some miracle an American guy wins a clay court challenger like should we be looking at somebody like that as having the potential to do what Karatev has done? That you can you can take that kind of challenger success in your late twenties and turn that into a run into the top thirty. Um, I, I'd say probably not. I mean, Karatev is um, is is an outlier. Uh, at least if he can sustain this, um, so it sort of depends like top 30 level probably not too many who will make that jump um i mean we had Mar martin fukcevic who made strides in his uh i believe it was mid to late 20s as well and he has sort of sustained uh a now level of around top 70 i believe um 50 ish to 100 ish um so he he's 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 on the um, main tour now and will continue to be unless he keeps facing Rublev yeah, all the time. Um, so, I mean, it, it depends a bit what the question is. Uh, top 30, no, but so for casual fans, they can probably uh, ignore your Martin Fucevic's um, of the tour, but I, I think I think I think they make Karatsev and Fucevic and even players like Sandgren and 
Peter Goyovchik, who um, made strides uh, somewhat late as well, even if they have regressed a bit. It, it gives you a, a deeper um, understanding of the tour. Uh, it, it speaks sort of to this incredible depth because, um, like I said, with Karatsev, it's not that he suddenly found a new level. Um, it's that he's finally able to sustain what is around his best level. Rather, something has clicked, he's become more consistent, confident, or better mental space or anything. So, um, if you're looking, for, I, I'd say if you're looking for a deeper understanding of the tour and, and the incredible depth that we have, then yes, these are players to look at. But we're not going to have too many who make slams and may finals and win titles on the 500 level uh coming through that, that well certainly was... certainly not as long as andre rublev is playing because there aren't going to be very many titles at the 500 level available yeah um so so it sounds like you think that you know, these challenger guys let's just say players who are ranked between 100 and 200 for just just to give us a a, a general sense of who we're talking about you think these guys are ranked outside the top 100 because of consistency that they that a lot of them have have the level to be a top 30 or top 50 player on a given day but they just don't sustain it as well as the guys who who do end up in the top 50 or do something like Karatsev has done lately um yes i say incidentally um I, I would say that um, everyone in, say, the top 200, even top 250, uh, on a day uh, can play on, on top 50 level. But um, it also sort of depends, even if on their day they can play top 50 level, like a top 50 player, someone ranked uh, in the 30s right now on the day might be able to play top five level. You know what I'm saying? So it, it's it's bit of a, it depends what your mean level is, what your average level is, and sort of moving your average level closer to what your top level is, if that makes sense. I'm reminded of something that Mike Cation said in an, in an interview on Carl Bialik's podcast. Carl asked him, like, you watch all, he watches all this challenger tennis. He, he knows all these guys, he knows their games, and what does he see that makes him think a player's ready to move up to the next level? And what Mike said about to that, like what the differentiating factor was, is the players who are ready to move up to the next level are the ones who know how to end points, whether that's a, a big serve or to take an opportunity in a rally or the ability to move up to the net and close up a point. That seemed to separate the men from the boys, so to speak. And give an indication of who was ready to move up, move up to the next level. Do you think that's a reasonable summary or a smart thing to look at? Or are there other things that you look at when you're watching challenger players to get a sense of who m might be good enough to play one level up? Yeah, I, I think, I think that's, that's a big, uh, part of it. Um, I think in, in, in order to be successful on challenger level, uh, you need to know how not to lose points. Uh, basically, whereas in order to take the next jump and be a, a consistent tour player, you need to know how to win points. You, you need to have something uh, to rely on to, to win points, even when you're not playing um, particularly well. And 
so so that's something I always try to to look out for. And another thing is is uh, these mental aspects, right? Like dealing with adversity, uh, consistency, uh, that kind of thing as well. But I I, I think I think uh, unsurprisingly so, uh, might uh, hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, if anybody has the time and the ability to summarize Challenger Tennis in one or two sentences, I'd say it is Mike Cation. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk about some specific guys. We started with Karatsev, a 27-year-old, but uh, there's so many exciting young players in the men's game right now, and I know you're often watching them, which is one of the main reasons I wanted to, to quiz you about them. Um, so I have a list of about 10 guys to bring up at varying levels of development. And let's, let's talk about some of them. So let's start with Yannick Sinner, who's, I think the best of the, the teenage class right now, both in ranking and potential and all that stuff. And I hear people say that he hits a heavy ball and that's a, a big part of his success. And it, I'm not sure how to quantify that. It seems like something players talk about a lot, but I don't, I'm not even sure how easy it is to see on TV, but do you think that's something you can, you can watch for or understand or makes a big difference at top level tennis? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've actually thought quite a bit about that as well, uh, hitting heavy because um, take someone like um, Kei Nishikori uh, who, who plays quick and fast tennis, um, the ball travels fast through the court, but it's not particularly heavy. Um, so, so, but I, I think I'm not quite sure exactly how I would explain it, but yeah, let, let's take Yannick Sinner, compare his strokes to, to Kei Nishikori, for example, and, and you see the difference. It, it's, it's just a lot more heavy. It's, um, I would say harder to, to meet uh, as an opponent, um, especially with someone like Sinner who has, has on both forehand and his backhand side. It's, uh, and it's, it's incredible timing. It's, um, yeah, it's, uh, he's, he's, like you say, he's quite clearly a, a step above the rest at the moment. So do you think he's a future top, well, I was going to say top one. Is he a future number one player? <laughs> um, Probably, I mean it, it. It's so hard because one once you get into the to the top ten and then top five, I, I think I think top ten we can very conf confidently say he will be in top five. Um, also looks likely, but beyond that, it's it depends so much on on, on opposition as well. Like, can we com confidently say that he'll be uh, better than Medvedev, for example? We we can. Um, one of the things uh, I I've tweeted a bit about this is 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 Sinner where he lacks mostly at the moment uh, as far as I see it is is his footwork. Um, he has this incredible timing, and to me it looks like he sort of over relies on the timing, and and especially on the foreign side, don't quite take those extra small steps in order to. Um, uh, improve his chances of, of hitting a clean ball. Um, I saw some tweets suggesting that it's fitness related and it could be, I don't know, I, I don't know how, how to quantify that because uh, if we're only looking at, for example, how much a player sweats, we would think Rafa Nadal was one of the least 
fit players and poor, and we know he's actually the opposite. Um, so uh, yeah, and, and that's that's kind of what's exciting about Sinner as well. You see, he's this amazing player already, but there's also quite a bit of room for improvement, and he seems um, willing to put in work. Yeah, I, I I love thinking about that sort of contrast. That we have some guys who are are at a certain level because they've eked out every last bit of their potential, and they're. I mean, think about somebody like Diego Schwartzman, who like he could improve, but I mean the reason he's in the top ten is because he's gotten every ounce of of effectiveness he possibly could out of what he does. And then you have these other players who are maybe at the same level. But you still see room for improvement. And another guy who comes to mind like that is Alexander Zverev. That like anybody can watch an Alexander Zverev match and think, oh, he could fix this. He could work on this. He could improve on this. And I mean, he's already a top ten. He's been top five player winning Masters events, and he could be even better. And it sounds like Sinner's in that category as well. And I I always get stuck thinking about guys who've already accomplished so much, who've gotten to such a high level with certain parts of their game missing. And it seems like there's a lot of historical cases where you you end up talking about that for an entire career, that if, if they if they got to age, I guess Sinner's still in his teens, but if, if you get to Zverev's age and you're still really inconsistent on second serves or something, then you're not going to figure out how to fix it. There's no, There's nothing you can tell a guy after he's been playing competitive tennis for a decade that's going to suddenly fix that problem and I mean, do you think that's a, a fair conclusion to draw like should we be looking at these guys who've been playing competitive tennis for a long time and think they they can improve this they are going to get better there's room for them to climb the rankings further if they just improve their footwork improve their second serve whatever the case may be i mean is that something that we can be optimistic about um yeah, I think I think about that quite a bit as well, and I think you and uh, Carl touched on it recently, Carl uh, Bialik, um, about Shapovalov. Um, I think it was Carl who mentioned that he seems to have sort of um, plateaued a bit in in his uh, improvement, but there's still so much about Shapovalov that you, uh, especially tactically, that you think he can improve. Um, uh, and return-wise as well. But, I mean, then there's... I, I don't know if bringing, bringing up a big three example uh, really helps helps uh, my point here, but Djokovic, when he came onto the scene, his serve was a weakness. And he built... He, uh, he, he's, he's still improving his serve. And now it's a, arguably a bigger strength than ever. Um, so... You can do it, but I, I sort of kind of actually more lean towards that there will be, you know, minor improvements rather than uh, major. I mean, there, there's a reason we haven't seen too many Stanmo Brinkas uh, during the years. Yeah, and that's probably a good way to think about it, that you can't say it's impossible. Of course, there are players who do improve in their mid-20s and late-20s and beyond, but the names that come to mind are guys like Djokovic and there's not room for that many of those. So if you are a player who gets to the top 10 at a young age and can figure out how to keep making your game better in major ways, then I mean, that really sets you apart. If everybody could do that, then it would be a different sport and we'd have to make room for a lot more guys at the top. 
let's talk about another Italian, Lorenzo Musetti. He just had a great week in Acapulco, and I I tweeted this kind of silly stat. I don't even remember the exact the exact number, but he he's almost undefeated against top sixty five players. I think I think he had one loss before he played Tsitsipas in the in the semifinal in Acapulco. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not so good against guys outside the top sixty five um, mm-hmm. or the next sixty five or something. But if you take that totally arbitrary uh, end point, then he he's outstanding. And that's another thing I wonder about. That they, it seems like there are guys at the challenger level or or teenagers coming up who just kind of need the opportunity to play on a big stage or play against really good players. And once they do that, then they're ready. But no amount of grinding it out on court two at a challenger is going to show that. And I mean, again, we're talking about an 18-year-old here, I think. So I, I might be jumping the gun making these kind of conclusions about how good a challenger player he could be. But he seems like he might be ready for prime time. I mean, do you think we can just drop Lorenzo Musetti on the ATP tour like he got into Miami this week and he's going to look like he belongs? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, if the rankings weren't as, as they um, are at the moment, if, if they actually were on a 52-week period as, as they usually are, I mean, he would comfortably make almost any... Um, main tour tournament at the moment, and I, I think I think that speaks volumes. Um, and I mean, he burst onto the scene, uh, Rome, I believe it was, uh, on clay, and now he's he's having great results on hardcore as well. Um, so I mean, I I'd say definitely. I I think I think he's he's ready for for main tour tennis absolutely and what do you think his career pink peak ranking would be if you have to pick a median number oh um i tend to be i think i tend to be a bit conservative because there's just so much we don't know about him or uh his career yet but i don't know uh 14 ish 14 okay I like the precision. Um, I've asked these last couple of questions because I kind of wanted to bring up something that you were tweeting about. It might be a year ago. I don't even know whether you remember this conversation, but um, somebody was was calling a challenger player like a potential top twenty guy, mm-hmm. and there was this whole conversation about whether that was whether that was a good way to think about it or whether that was even respectful or how hard it was to be a top twenty guy. I don't even remember what the what all the issues being debated were. But I remember taking away from that conversation that saying that someone is a top 20 guy is, it could mean a lot of different things. So, I mean, let, let's start with the, the kind of pinning down a definition here. So if I catch you, Eric, saying that some, some challenger player is, you know, probably a top 20 guy somewhere down the road, what do you mean by that? Um, I think I would... Uh, hedge a, a bit more and say that he has top 20 potential um, <laughs> because then you can always get out of it <laughs> no but I, what I mean about that is um, more or less if um, everything goes more or less uh, according to plan this guy uh, had, definitely has the potential to, to be um, uh, in the top 20 for at least a few years I think that's what I'm saying and that was one of the distinctions that 
you and others are trying to hash out on Twitter that you can say top 20 and mean sort of a perennial top 20 guy. He's, he's going to have a few year-end finishes in the top 20. And you can also say it about someone who just, you know, sneaks up to number 20 for a week and then falls back to 35 when his 250 semifinal points fall off or something. And that's not what you're talking about. So, I mean, it, it it's a legit, like tour regular guy who's winning some tour level events probably maybe making the second week of a slam like like a a, a pretty big name guy you'd have to be to, to fit your definition of top 20. yeah i'd say so um and yeah a big name guy for for people like you and me at least uh, <laughs> yeah yeah i i think i think that fits the bill uh I'm trying to think of examples in the last few years, but I don't know, maybe David Goffin, uh, even John Eisner, that kind of player. I mean, one easy way I find to think about that is if somebody is a solid top 20 player, then they're probably one of these guys who are sneaking into the top 10. Uh, right. The, the player who comes to mind right now is on the women's tour, and that's Elisa Mertens, who, like, in my ELO ranking, she's, she's in the top 10 with plenty of room to spare but i'm not sure she's been in the top 10 at all in the wta rankings but she's but she always seems to be like 12 15 something like that and she definitely deserves to be there uh and most of the men like you mentioned isner and gofan they've both spent time in the top 10 uh somebody like jurgen Meltzer, maybe um uh, i guess that's going back a few years but it's tough to be in the top 20 for a long time and not make an appearance in the top 10 even if it's just for a few weeks here and there. And that that's the number that really seems to get people to sit up and take notice. So that's one way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, another guy, even younger than the, the Italians is Carlos Alcaraz. And he's another guy, I think I've heard people say he hits a heavy ball. Um, he's, like I say, he's the youngest of this bunch so far. So even though we've seen him play quite a bit, he, there's still a lot of question marks. What I really wonder about is, I think all the matches I've seen him play so far are on clay, and I think it was Juan Carlos Ferrero who said he thinks Alcaraz will ultimately be better on hard court. Uh, Do you think that's possibly true of a guy who, I mean, a Spaniard who comes up on clay, looks good on clay as a teenager, hasn't had a lot of experience on other surfaces? Like, is that even a sensible thing to say? Uh, that, that's that's very interesting to me. Um, I, I wouldn't agree, um, mainly because uh, at least at the moment um, his his serve uh, is probably his his biggest weakness. And um, I, re- I remember a couple of years ago. Uh, I don't know if you remember. We had a short email conversation about Fabio Fognini and what makes him uh, so good in clay. And I, I think. Uh, our conclusion was that um, if you don't have a great serve, uh, you need a surface that sort of takes away um, the importance of of the serve, and, and clay does that better than any other um, surface. Um, and even beyond that, I mean, like you say, he, he hits a heavy ball, but he hits also hits with a lot of um, height over the net and a lot of spin and that kind of thing. So to me, I definitely more of a clay court player but then again he qualified for the Australian Open and even won a main round, main draw match at the Aussie Open so maybe he's on to something 
Yeah, and, and we have seen plenty of guys that when they come up at such an early age, there's lots of time for development and improving the serve. And even Kasparud still pretty early in his career, but he looked like some of how you're describing Alcaraz. If you go back to when he was first winning clay court challengers uh, and he's flattened out his shots and hitting bigger serves. Uh, there's examples in that. And I wouldn't say that you can predict, predict that for everyone, but there, there's at least some precedent. Um what about a couple of other, well, I have three other clay court guys on this list and let's, I'll just throw the names out there. One is Juan Manuel Serendolo, who, who won a title totally out of nowhere in South America last month. Um, Hugo Gaston, who was kind of the star of the French open and is quite short at 173 centimeters or five, eight. And Sebastian Baez, who's won a couple of challengers in South America this year. Uh, he's even shorter. He's five, seven or 170 centimeters. And I just have to throw this out there. When I, I, I think in both metric and, and, and inches and feet, but I always have to double check before I cite any of these things. So I was Googling the conversion. And when I Googled 173 centimeters, one of Google's suggestions was the question, is 5'8 a good height? <laughs> and I'd have to say for tennis, it's not. So we've got these guys in... in this has got to be the only compare, only conversation that's going to throw Alcaraz, Serendolo, Gaston, and Baez into the same bucket. But these guys all look like they're clay court players, but the tour is predominantly on other surfaces. It's tough to be a clay court specialist these days. Uh, all these guys, you could say something about their games is very clay court oriented, whether it's the way they play or the way they serve or the fact that they're so short. Um, I mean, how do you think about guys like this and what their long-term potential is when it, it seems like they're going to struggle on hard courts? And I mean, if, if you had to pick like which of these player types we have here that seem to be focused towards clay, like which of these guys would you pick as most likely to emerge as a threat on hard courts as well? Um. I mean, it, it, it would have to be Alcaraz um, if for no, no other reason than that he's, um, at least in my mind, uh, shown a higher level uh, than the other two. I, maybe not actually, uh, given Gaston made the third or fourth round at, at the French and uh, Alcaraz could do that. But with, with Gaston, I mean, there, there, there is a quiet, no pun intended, uh, obvious ceiling to his game. Um, it's, it's, he, he's, a, he's a trickster. He, he loves to drop shot and he's, he has th these big mood swings. And he, I, I, think, I think he'll be a nuisance to a lot of players for many years to come. But it did, he might have a stint in the top 40, but maybe even top 30, but not beyond that. And whereas with Alcaraz, uh, you can see him uh, progress further than that. And Baez as well, uh, he, he, he's done superbly well uh, in the last few weeks or, or month or so. Um, but um, it's, it's, it's a shame you have to mention Diego Schwartzman when you talk about Sebastian Baez. Uh, Diego Schwartzman has shown players like Baez that it is doable. Um, so he could, but like mean progression, I, I'd say uh, Alcaraz is, is 
quite far above the rest of the other two. So since since we know quite a bit about how Diego Schwartzman has evolved as a player, like he he didn't he didn't burst on the scene like Sarandolo has when he was a teenager. It took him a while. He played a ton of challengers. He looked like a, a clay court specialist for a long time, and eventually he got comfortable on tour. He could win on hard courts. I, I've been shocked by his development on hard courts. The fact that he is a threat week in week out, regardless of surface. Uh, can you look at, I mean, I guess what strikes me about Baez is, like, I'm not sure I can see it watching him, why he's winning so much, besides the fact that he's just a solid clay court guy, but he's he's accomplishing more at his age than Schwartzman did at the same age, I think. Mm. But it seems like a stretch to say that, at least looking at Baez now, that he could be the next Schwartzman. I mean, partly that's just, I mean, Schwartzman is one of a kind, but... Can, can, can do you see it any differently? Can you look at Baez now and see like this guy could develop into a player who's more than just the short guy who can play on clay? <laughs> um, I mean, he 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 moves superbly well. Uh, anticipates great. Uh, he does play high percentage tennis, as you allude to, but he's still he's still able to move his his opponent around and. Um, uh, especially on clay, that that's always going to be an asset. Um, but I sort of answered your question there, there already. Especially on clay, that would be an asset. I mean, I I, th- I think again, I there's a reason uh, we talk about Schwartzman in, in the way that we do because he is an outlier. Um, other short players. I don't know, Ricardo Sperankis, uh, Yoshi Tinishioka, who's still young. I mean, they they haven't been able to have the same kind of pro- progression um, as as Schwartzman. And I think uh, we shouldn't start expecting other players to. He's, he's simply an outlier. I mean, um, relative to his height, Schwartzman might be the best player on tour. That kind of thing. It is interesting that, well, yeah, that. It's funny when I wrote, when I wrote an article about Schwartzman for the Economist, my editor gave it a, a name or a subtitle like, "If if tennis had evolved with an underarm serve, then Schwartzman would be number one." And I'm not totally comfortable with that kind of claim just because it's so bizarre. But I mean, it's probably true. If if you just force everyone on tour to underarm arm serve, then it's either Schwartzman or Bublik, I guess. <laughs> um, but it, it's an interesting point that you mentioned Barankis, other guys who come to mind, Duty Sela, um, going back a little further, uh, the Rockuses. And right now, it seems like if you're a short player, you should be a clay court specialist. I mean, just simply thinking about Schwartzman, Gaston, and Baez. But if we look at the rest of that list of names I just mentioned, we're talking about hardcore guys. Like, Barankis is terrible on clay. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Rockus was a grass court specialist. Uh, Duty Sela would like go thousands of miles out of his way to play on anything but clay. So I mean, there's, there's there's nothing inherent about like short players needing to be clay court specialists. So I mean, in, I'm not sure what what to what to make of that. But maybe that's reason for a little more optimism with Gaston and Baez playing on other surfaces. Maybe uh, I mean. <laughs> and Gaston has the. Um, it's also a lefty, which which always uh, will come in handy. Uh, no pun intended again. 
Um, I mean, I, I think maybe you have the data on this, but, but my general feeling is that um, tennis is, it, it actually is more and more serve dominated now, at least on the men's side. And I think as we spoke about earlier, um, so they will need a surface that sort of decreases the importance of, of, of a great serve. Uh, and and Ricardo's Berankis, I mean, he, he he never made any great strides. He, he was a solid player, of course, but if he would take the step beyond that and, and start talking about Hugo Schwartzman level or even slightly below that, I think... Um, there is a need, Schwartzman aside, for a, for a for a serve dominant dominant game. And this isn't the, the the segue I was planning on making, but since since you mentioned how much the game is serve dominated, I, I wanted to mention I wanted to ask you earlier about Sebastian Corda and it, Sebastian Corda's calling card is not his return game exactly, and he's he's not the type of player we've been talking about. He's a lot taller. He has a big serve of his own. But the thing that sticks out to me about Korda's results so far is that he's beaten Isner twice. And, I mean, Isner is probably not anywhere near his peak level right now. And there's always some some kind of unpredictable results when you have a game like Isner's. But the fact that Korda has done that tells me he's more of a well-rounded player than a lot of the tall, serve-oriented guys who are coming up at his age. And... Do you think that's a fair assessment of Korda, that he has a well-rounded game, that he's going to be more than just another tall guy who can serve? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think he, he he's, he's another player who moves very well. Uh, he has great timing, uh, which you need to have in order to to return Johnny Isner's serve. Um, and he's also a, a very clever player um, as well. Uh, you're rarely scratching your head and thinking, what the hell is he doing there? Um, I actually wasn't too big on Korda before, um, uh, mainly when he was playing on, on Challenge 11, mainly because I didn't find him very exciting to watch, uh, honestly. Uh, but then in the summer, I believe it was actually Mike Cation, whom we mentioned before, uh, told me uh, Korda is going to make strides. And, uh, of course, a couple of months later, he he makes the fourth round. I believe it was at, at the French, and now he's he's looking uh, better and better. Um, so, yeah, there's absolutely a lot more than just uh, serve to his game. And I would actually say um, one weakness he, he does have is 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 in terms of serve placement. Um, I saw some graphics uh, when he was playing early in the year, and. It, it puts decent speed on, on his serve, but there's a lot of uh, room between his average hit point and, and the line, more so than you would uh, expect uh, from a player of his height. So, so even even there, there, there is um, improvement uh, to be had, and I think um, probably Opelka aside, he, he, he's the player to be most excited about as a, among the young Americans. And when you're talking about the serve placement, you're talking about distance from the service line, like the depth of the serve? Uh, yeah, service line and uh, 
yeah, service line and the center line and the uh, side lines as well. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious what you think about this. I've noticed, I don't see this so much as something people are talking about, but I've noticed when I'm charting matches that I'm a, lot, a lot of the younger players don't hit the corners as much as they used to, or and not because they've of any limitations of them. It's just, it's the choice they're making that somebody like Feliz Ajayali Asim is hitting way more body serves or down the middle, not necessarily body serves, but in, in the middle of the box serves than somebody a generation earlier. And Medvedev does it a little. I don't think Rublev does it quite as much, but he, he does it to some extent. And do you think there's room for that tactically? Or do you think that's a tactical choice they're making to go down the middle more often? Yeah, I think, I mean, I would love to see a surge of uh, body serves. Um, I think it's been underutilized for quite a while now. So I, if that is a trend, um, I'm delighted about it because I, I think I think obviously part 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 of what makes the body serve uh, so efficient is is the uh, surprise element, right? Um, you're you're not expecting. Uh, your opponent to aim for a belly button, basically. Um, so, uh, but I would love to see more of it. And I think um, young players might also be uh, focusing more on the slice and the kick rather than the uh, placement of the ball. And I think that's probably also, um, at, at least for second series, a, a, a positive trend uh, in terms of uh, developing the game. Do you think that the the game is, I guess I need to preface this a little more than I was going to. So in really, really broad terms, it, it seems like there was a period in the, let's say the 90s when servers were on the rise. There was all these, all these big guys, all these aces like Sampras and Ivanisevic and Rosetsky and, and many more guys like that. And then the next generation that came along figured out how to return all of that. So you had Hewitt and then eventually Nadal and Djokovic and now... There have always been big servers, but you got to be Isner to really dominate on serve against the quality of returning that's going on. And players like Isner or Karlovic, they have their own problems. So in a way, you could say the return has been ascendant in the last couple of decades. And do you think that's turning around again that with guys like Ajay Ali Asim and Zverev when he serves well, like that, that we could see things start to tilt back towards serving instead of returning? Um, possibly, I mean, I, well, I think, I think, I mean, we talk about the serve as, as the most important shot in tennis and it, it is, but I would say a, as clear as it is that the serve is, is most important as clear to me, at least it is that the return is the second most important in today's game because, um, even as, as great defensively as uh, a lot of these players are, the average rally um, is still quite short, uh, at least on hardcore, which uh, dominates the tour. Um, so I think, I mean, I mean, you're talking about Zverev, Medvedev, and uh, Ajay Aliasim. They, they, even if they are great service, they're, they're also great returners. So I think maybe not. I was thinking as you as you were saying that that 
if you look at the women's game for comparison, returns have totally taken over. I mean, there's no... I won't say there's no, there's very little dominant serving the way that some men can serve dominantly, but virtually every player on the women's tour has a really solid return, will hit a few return winners over the course of a match, sometimes more than a few, to the point that it almost feels like the the return is the new serve. And and you're right, like you don't see too many players coming up who who just aren't able to return, who have these one-dimensional games. And maybe that's the new thing, that every player has to be so complete to be able to compete. And do you think we could end up moving further in the other direction then, that that men's tennis could evolve in the direction that women's tennis has evolved, where we're going to see more aggressive returning, more return winners, and I mean, more cases where servers re- do legitimately have to be scared of hitting a good enough second second serve that the returner won't just obliterate it? Yeah, I, I think, I, I think uh, there's a lot to that. Um, Actually, earlier this week, I was listening to Source, the, the Swedish uh, tennis podcast, um, and uh, they had uh, Linus Eriksson on, and if you don't know who that is, that's fine. Uh, he coaches uh, Jacqueline Kabayawad, who's ranked around 5600 uh, in the world. Um, and one thing they were talking about, and one thing Linus had uh, observed, is that um, women's players actually practice a lot more returns than, 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 than the men do. Um, and I think, I mean, first that was surprising to me, but the more I, I was thinking about it, like you say, the return uh, could arguably be as an important shot in, in the WTA as, as the service. And uh, I think, um, I mean, it, it depends what happens with racket technology as well, of course, it's Sarah, but ignoring that for a moment, I, um, I, I do think it, it, it'll be near impossible to be a uh, top 10 or at least top five player without a um, great return game uh, on the men's side. Yeah, I, as as we talk about it, it does seem like that's the the more likely direction to go. And it reminds me of a, a conversation we've been having uh, via email the last few days, which is, I mean, to give up a little bit of backstory, uh, Eric posted a a picture on Twitter of him hitting a tweener, which you know, uh, applause to you. I've never hit a tweener. I would. I don't think I dare even try. Uh, but seeing the picture reminded me of something, which is, this is just a general observation. This is not a reflection on Eric's game at all. That whenever you see pictures or video of amateurs, they look tiny on court compared to how pros look. The, the way that pros cover the court or move or the fact that they're bigger people, I don't know. It it it, it seems like they make the court small in a way that amateurs, certainly myself included, um, do not. And the fact that the fact that players can return these monster serves at all is I mean, it's kind of a miracle when you think about it from the perspective of a player like i've i've faced guys who were on the fringes of the pro tour at sometimes in sometime in their life and i mean they could just hit these serves into the corner that like i barely could see them go by like i, I there's nothing i could do to make the court small enough that i could even get most of their serves back or touch them in some cases and i'm uh, I'm wondering what what you think about this, having talked about it now for a couple of days, that 
what what is it that the pros do? I mean, they're a little bit bigger than we are. Uh, some of them are a lot bigger than I am anyway. But that can't be the whole story. Like they, they, they're faster, they anticipate better, but what's, what do you think is the big factor that makes them able to make the court so small? Yeah, I, I, I think it's hard to, to pin it down to, to one factor. Uh, you, you, as you say, mo most of these players are bigger uh, than us, uh, but, I, but I'm 180 uh, meters uh, or centimeters and it, or 5'11", so I mean, I, I'm, I'm as tall as David Gauthier, for example. Um, he's a great returner and covers the, the court uh, exceptionally. Um, and like, it, it, it does confuse me uh, when I play and then watch these professionals because like, I, I'm, a, I'm a, like I told you, I'm a pretty quick guy. I, I can run fairly fast um above average for sure but I, I when i can't run these fellow amateurs shot sometimes i i'm left wondering how 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 the pros do it obviously most of them uh especially david gofan uh is is quicker than i am still and they move more efficiently and they anticipate better but they also face players who, who hit all that much more uh, all that much harder and more accurately so i'm I think I think uh, anticipation might play a bigger part than, than we uh, uh, like to give it credit, um, and as well and also um, how to move efficiently because like I've tried sliding on hardcore, but <laughs> it's just not happening. I'm I if, if I try again, I'm I'm afraid I'm gonna break my hip, <laughs> and I'm I'm still young, so like I. I, I think I think anticipation and and uh, efficiency of movement I would say are the two two biggest uh, factors at least from an uh, amateur point of view. Do you think that the anticipation is something that uh, do players develop it just by playing so much and practicing so much, or is that more of the sort of innate skill that? separates the future stars from the players who are just never going to make the cut like it's more of a natural innate ability i think it's a bit of both i think i think it, like most other things it, it, it's a skill you can develop and the more tennis you play you realize okay if i hit this shot then there's uh, a good chance uh this type of shot will come um back to me especially against this player so uh, anticipation i think what goes into that as well is is doing your homework so it's 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 learning as well about how how certain players um play but then again they, i played some of the same guys for for a couple of years now um so i think it it's a bit of an inane uh thing because as like we were talking about Corda and I, um, I was talking about his anticipation. Like he, he's obviously still a young guy, even if he has played a lot of tennis in his life. But he, anticipation-wise, uh, he, he's he's uh, in the upper echelons of the tour. Um, so probably a bit of both. Is is the short answer? 
Yeah, it, uh, besides Corda, and I guess we've mentioned David Gaffon a couple times, he seems he comes to mind as a, a big anticipation guy. Who are the players you think of as being really great in that department? Um, well, obviously the first player that comes to mind is, is Djokovic, but beyond that, um, I'm a huge Kei Nishikori fan. I, I think um, his anticipation is, is great as well, and, and Fabio Fognini, whom we also mentioned earlier, uh, he doesn't need to have great footwork, even if uh, it's better than he often gets credit for, uh, because he anticipates uh, so superbly. Um, those come to mind: Gil Simon, Adrian Manorino as well. Um, yeah. And you didn't even mention Federer. Doesn't Federer come to mind a little bit? Yeah, he does, but it's 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 a boring answer, isn't it? <laughs> it's. It's, uh, it's, it, it's a boring answer, but you realize when I can put Roger Federer in the title of a podcast episode, like twice as many people listen to it. <laughs> okay, Roger Federer is the best uh, anticipator on tour. There's your title. Um, so how does that interact with footwork then? You mentioned Fabio Fanini, great anticipation, maybe not great footwork, or at least can be lazy with the footwork. And that's something that you mentioned with, with Sinner as well. Uh, I mean, it seems like the the real golden combination is to anticipate really well and have great footwork and I suppose not be lazy about it. And I mean, again, Federer is the boring answer here, but I guess when people when people say watching Federer is like watching ballet or something silly like that, then that's kind of what they mean. Like he, he's always there and he's always doing the right thing with his feet. And if, if Fanini and Sinner are only coming through with half of that equation it seems like Djokovic is one guy who also does both but are there other people who come to mind who are are good at both of those two things I, I think if you are good at both of those two things you're you're likely to be very high up in the rankings um I, I'd say Daniel Medvedev is one um maybe someone like the Spaniards Batista Gudkarni Busta also come to mind. I'm, I'm sort of scrolling through the uh, rankings here to see if anyone else pops out. Um, I, I'd say it's a pass as well. Actually, I think I think he's he's um, an extremely smart tennis player, probably more so than he gets uh, credit for. Actually, and this seems like some combination of anticipation and footwork is something that it's easy to not give players credit for because. If you do all those things right, then again, unless you're Federer and people are, are already talking about it, then it, it's not obvious, right? Like it, it's if you're if you're making like Gail Malfi's acrobatic shots, then that's impressive. That goes straight on the highlight reel. But if you're Roberto Batista Agu and you're just always where you need to be, it's kind of boring sometimes. And like I, I've been guilty of thinking of Roberto Batista Agu as boring, uh, which isn't really right, but. I'm willing to defend that position, but do you, th I mean, it, I'm wondering, is that, is that kind of a way to, to, I'm not sure how to say this exactly. Is this a way of identifying players who have good anticipation and footwork, just thinking of the guys who seem boring? That's actually an interesting way to think of it. Um, I mean, a lot of people would call Schwartzman boring. I, I know you wouldn't agree and nor would I, but... No, who are these people? I'm going after them. 
um, yeah, I, I think I think I think that's a great way of putting it because I mean, uh, uh, Adrian Manorino, as I mentioned earlier, um, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone but me who actually likes to watch him play. Um, and Gilles Simon is is another who who fits that bill at, at least used to maybe not so much anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, but then again, only contrarians um, think Federer is, is boring to watch, but obviously he has a lot more uh, else going for him. Yeah, and I wonder too if, if one way of identifying these players is the fact that they are successful on hard courts without having big weapons. And that's that's Gilles Simone to a T, Manorino. I mean, given his level, he fits that description. Most of his success has been on hard courts. And even Schwartzman, like I say, you wouldn't think of him as someone who would evolve into a hard court force, but he has. Uh, so if you're going to win on hard courts, you've got to either have a big game or have this magical footwork anticipation combination. And without one of those two, you have no chance, really. You've just got to be a clay court specialist. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, before we move on... Um... Roger Federer, um, only contrarians think is going to watch. There, there's your uh, title, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you can put Roger Federer's name and throw in a dash of clickbait, then oof, yeah. the list, the downloads are going to go through the roof. Okay, this is this is not connected to much of anything else we've talked about, but you mentioned um, Jacqueline Kabayawad earlier, and this is definitely not going in the headlines. I don't think I'd get a lot of downloads for... Um, Swedish tennis players in the top 600, but uh, Sweden has a pretty long history of male tennis success. And I, when I think of other countries that have a lot of stars, they usually eventually end up with both male and female stars. Uh, like Italy kind of goes back and forth, but they've had both. And I guess Sweden's on a downswing now, but there've been, there were multiple generations of male stars, but there's never been a lot of successful women's tennis in Sweden. And it's not because of anything structural about Sweden, I don't think. Like, I mean, Sweden's usually near the top of the list for gender equality and stuff like that. You have female stars in other sports. So, I mean, women are active and involved in sports. But, I mean, do you think there's some reason why we haven't seen more Swedish female tennis players rising to the top? Um, this is a tough question. I, I, um, I, I saw it in the show notes and I... Um, asked around a bit and one of the answers I got was that in the 80s we, we did have um, quite a few um, tour players at least uh, on the women's side and so they were there there was just not any of these superstars um, so I think there might be this is a boring answer for sure there might be a, a bit of chance involved because it, if one of uh, the best uh, Swedish female athletes um, happens to choose tennis, um, then there would be a bigger boom because one thing you um, often hear uh, women or uh, people of color or minorities uh, talk about is that having someone uh, represent you means that you're likelier to, to pursue that sport. And, and maybe Despite having quite a few players on tour, there was just not ever someone who, who quite made that jump. Um, so, like, yeah, I, I think I think I think that's my best guess. But honestly, I, I don't know. 
Okay. You know, it, it, it's, it's something I've wondered about thinking about just how, how different countries have evolved in different ways. And another thing that comes to mind is, like, I, I said that you have female stars in other sports, which sounds like a reason why you'd expect to have female stars in tennis too, but that can go both ways, right? That you can, if you have a lot of outlets for for women with an athletic bent, then that means they're that much less likely to choose tennis. I mean, if you've, if, if you've got a strong biathlon team and you're watching that every weekend, then I mean, some players are going to choose to do that instead of tennis. Or in, in America, I think that's a big reason why women's tennis is doing better than men's tennis. Because if you're the sort of person to be a future tennis star, then there's more opportunities in men's sports uh, than there are in women's sports. So tennis is comparatively a better option. And that's why you have 18 women in the WTA top 100 right now. And I think nine or 10 men in the ATP top 100. So even that's pretty good compared to recent years. So it's so many factors. It's really tough to pin that stuff down. Mm. Um, let's see. I thought I had one more question I wanted to ask you before we wrap this up. And I want to pick a good one. Okay. Maybe this isn't a good one, but I'll ask it anyway. We got Lloyd Harris in a <laughs> ATP 500 final um, in Dubai last week. He ultimately lost to Karatsev, but it's his career best result. I think he's at a career best ranking now. And since he's 24, he's kind of on the line between being a prospect, who we can expect to be maybe a future star, and someone who's a veteran who's kind of shown us all he's going to show us. And do you think he do you have a sense of which side of that line he's on like is 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 a 24 year old doing stuff like he's doing right now is that someone who you think of as still on the rise um i mean it, it always uh depends on the player i mean when when australia burgos started making the tour in in his uh, early to mid 30s uh he, he was he was on the rise uh but he was not a prospect um so so i mean uh, with Lloyd Harris, uh, it didn't come as, as too big of a surprise to me because he, he has the build. He has, I, th I think he has a good enough serve. His, his backhand is not a weakness, I would say, and, and his forehand is, is good. So, I mean, in terms of what, whether he's a prospect or veteran, I mean, it's... I'm a linguist, but I, I don't I don't care particularly for semantics. So, <laughs> speaking uh, about Lloyd Harris, perhaps uh, specifically, um, he said in the post-match uh, interview um, after the final, I believe it was that he had, uh, or after the semi-final, maybe he, that he had been waiting uh, for a result like this, and and it has finally come. And I think he might not be making a lot of 500 finals this year, but I, I think we can safely say that he'll establish himself on the tour. So is he a top 20 guy? <laughs> uh, top 50, not top 20. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Top 20 seems like a stretch. Yeah. And when you start having these conversations about prospects or borderline prospects, then if, you, if you're in an optimistic mood, you end up with an awful lot of these top 20 guys. And it's easy to forget there's only 20 places in the top 20. Mm. Um, the math is is ruthless that way. Yeah. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. Yeah, thank you. I, I had a great time. Uh, happy you uh, inviting me, even though I haven't written a book recently. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, there are not enough people writing books, and I'm still waiting for yours. So maybe we're encouraging you to, to write the next great book about Swedish tennis. Um, so everyone listening, be sure to check out Eric if you don't already follow him on Twitter, ERK Tennis. Um, all the past episodes of the show are at podcast.tennisabstract.com. And of course, check out my daily podcast called Expected Points. So thanks again to Eric and thanks everyone for listening. And I'll see you next time. <laughs>